Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. My guest today is Hilberto Rosas, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. We will be talking about his book, Unsettling, The El Paso Massacre, Resurgent White Nationalism, and the U.S.-Mexico Border, published recently by Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you very much, Gilberto, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you because, as you might know, I've been a fan of your work for a while. Uh, I really enjoyed your previous book, Barrio Libre, and... This book, in my reading, was written in a very different tone. So to start off, um, I was wondering if you could tell us how you arrived at this tone, and especially you when know, you opened the book by making clear your background as someone who grew up in El Paso, as an anthropologist and as a witness. So I'm curious how these multiple positions figured into how you wrote Unsettling. You know, when I when I saw that question, it made me pause. I, I guess in Barrio Libre, right, I was relying more on the subtextual elements of my identity. More marking, I think, in my in my in my mind, then a, a, a more of a, a wrestling with the academic theory that was, you know, kind of at that moment important to me and but also at that point also recognizing that I am from the border and I, and I did say that over and over again in Maria Libre but but this one this but unsettling is so much more personal because when the horrible event of the mass shooting that happened in El Paso well, when it occurred, I had just gotten back from El Paso, and and it, and it and it's home. And as I talk about in one of the chapters, I I I was I woke up or I was having lunch and and really, really lunch, and I, I remember I saw the news, you know, like the the, the headline flash on my social media. And I, I just felt like my, 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 I just felt, I started to shake and I got on the phone. I tried to find my phone and I frantically tried to call my parents and I, and I just couldn't get through. So, and then I, you know, and eventually I did and thank God they were fine, but they were on the highway and they, they were, you know, they were, they were unsettled at what was happening. You know, my I, I remember my father wouldn't talk to me hardly at all. My mom was 
you know, similarly reticent. And uh, so, you know, as I, after the event happened and the 22 people, you know, were, were killed by this white nationalist, I felt a real import, a real, I was compelled to write about home. Following the leads of, you know, feminists of color, following the leads of other scholars of color who, who, who think through the import of how home affects subjectivity of the writer and the like. You know, and I, and, and I, I, I wrote it rather quickly because I'm, I'm of the opinion that we are, that we are on the precipice of a very dangerous moment in United States history. I think we are teetering on some really, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to engage in hyperbole, but it, you know, I just think there's a, there's a very uh, resurgent right-wing nationalist movement before us. It is seeping into the universities, into daily life, into uh, institutions. I mean, the, the 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 pulling back of affirmative action, the attack on women's rights, the attack on women's bodies, the attacks on trans on trans and queers' lives. I I I I worry, and I wrote the book quickly and urgently, informed by you know, my my anxiety about my family and my friends in El Paso about my deep engagement with people and activists from the border, from El Paso, and with the, the knowledge that even before this horrendous mass shooting had occurred in El Paso, there had been other moments of vigilante violence in Arizona, in South Texas, and the like in San Diego, Tijuana. And for, for me, you, you cannot separate the mass militarized policing that has occurred, particularly over the past 30-ish years, and this, and the shooting. I mean, there's been some 10,000 deaths and, and these deaths are, are largely by people who, as other scholars have talked about, who are trying to cross the border by avoiding, by avoiding the, the border patrol or other militarized uh, policing apparatus, apparatus, apparatuses, pardon me. And they end up in the environs, in the killing deserts, they call them Barrio Libre, and they, you know, they, they, they suffer often painful, often, you know, horrendous deaths. So you have 10,000 deaths already, and then you have the scene of violence. And for me, those two cannot be uncoupled. And I will say that, that when I wrote my first book, Body of Libre, back in 2006, well, not when I wrote my first book, Body of Libre, which was in 20, it came out in 2012, I had undertaken research as far back as 2006. There, there was already, you know, formations of, of, 
of vigilante violence occurring. And, it, and I just, you know, so that kind of urgency compelled the, the rioterly style that you, that you read. And that's why I felt, you know, the, the, I needed to chart out how a city that my that my 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 ancestors came to as a site of refuge was put into the crosshairs of the white nationalists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, first I want to acknowledge that you know you're sharing something very personal with us and with all your readers, and I thank you for being so vulnerable with that. Um, and you, know, you mentioned we're at the precipice of a particular political moment in the US. And in the book, I think you make the very important argument that this moment has historically been in the making for a while. So the El Paso massacre was not a sudden aberration. And I'm curious about the titular concept of the book, Unsettling, in relation to that. So you hinted at this a little bit, but how How does unsettling ground your argument and what was at stake for you in thinking through unsettling? I I want to underscore what is at stake is a death in life of, of people who cross the border, people who live on the border, people who are from the border and, and other communities in the globe. I mean, I, I, the border is not just a, a brown and white, a, a Mexican a United States formation. It's far more complex than that. I mean, you have the, you know, the recently you had the, 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 the appearance of uh, Haitians, Cubans, Russians, you know, at the border. So I, I make the case in, in the in the book that unsettling that that the, the ten thousand deaths that I mentioned earlier in 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 this interview. It 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 sets the stage. For the white nationalist shooter, what unset what unsettles is how intensified and militarized border enforcement underpins this massacre, and I also make the case that. Border violence is foundational to settler-colonial projects, and simultaneously, migration unsettles settler foundations to states. The, the, the repeated movements back and forth across borders. The arrival of people in mass trying to get asylum, or to even just go to work, I think, puts a settler imaginary into some sort of crisis. 
Yeah. Um, I want to pick up on what you mentioned about what is at stake, which is death and life of communities around borders. And, you know, for our listeners, you know, I think that's very intentional. So in the book, you draw our attention to the politics of death and life rather than life and death. So tell us about this um, reversal or reordering, let's say. How did it reframe your understanding of necropolitics? Okay. Um, as you already noted, it's, it is a necropolitical engagement, right? It, um, I began thinking about about what I call a necrosubjection many years ago. I think when I first met you, I, I gave a paper that... that that becomes eventually a chapter in this book. And having just said, I, I was trying to avoid the theoretical debates that are, that are central to much of contemporary anthropology. I'm, I'm going to engage in them right now. Um, it was a macro subjection is a way to, to, to reorient Foucauldian questions of of, of of biopolitics or life and death. And in the book, my my primary example of that is, is the discourses demanded upon um, expert witnesses in asylum cases and how you have to frame the migrant, the refugee, the asylum seeker as someone who is fleeing death fleeing horror, fleeing, you know, the abject, fleeing the, the fleeing the, I think I talk about at, at length, the, the drug trafficker, the, the menace of home, right? And, and what I was, and what I found important in the work of Mbembe and necropolitics is how death politics, particularly of for him in his case in Africa and also from certain areas of the of the of the Mid East, the Palestinian terrorist in his terms, um, open up a way to to talk about not life and death, but death and life. And in my mind, that kind of speaks to the demands of the, of the, of giving testimony, of witnessing in asylum cases. And in that same chapter, I begin by, by juxtaposing migrants who who by avoiding the U.S. Mexico border patrol put put their own lives at risk, and hence the idea of necro subjection, the the production of subjectivity that, that has been exposed to death as a production of even my my subjectivity as an expert witness as someone who has to to marshal the the demonic the the the, the imperialist the racist in order to get people help people I don't get people I. I, I help people get asylum. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I want to speak a bit more about witnessing. So you mentioned your position uh, as an expert witness, but also, you know, throughout the book, you insist on bearing witness, saying you refuse to be a neutral party or a participant observer. But we also see other witnesses. We see, for example, lawyers bearing witness to bad news they must give to their clients or people like Father Mosher, who feels shame in witnessing torture. So I'm curious about how you think through these different forms of witnessing and yeah, what kinds of possibilities or limits do they pose? I think what witnessing, I mean, aside from, I mean, I think the critique of participant observation of the neutrality of the observer, I don't think that's particularly novel to, to my, to the, to the book. I mean, it's been readily critiqued by multiple trajectories in anthropology, right? We would, um, but what witnessing opens up is the politicization of that kind of knowledge. In other words, the the, the it, it it underscores that be it an activist, be it an anthropologist, be it a uh, a reverend who who was that I talk about in the book who was in Chile during Pinochet and he comes to the border to 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 take on to fight the good fight. Um, um, they're not there to produce neutral knowledge. They are there to generate knowledge from testimony, from what they see, from what they feel, from what they experience to, for social justice. And I guess part of the elements of witnessing that I'm pointing to is just that, that, that and again, this is hardly, I don't think this is new at all. I, I mean, the Austin School of Anthropology has long maintained that I'm, you know, that I'm it, it, it was. It came into formation after I had already left, but I, I'm very much informed by those debates. Is it the recognition that activists produce knowledge, and, and often anthropology anthropologists have, have to rely upon that knowledge in when they when they write, and that the best kind of knowledge that we can produce is knowledge that is committed to, to, to a social just cause, socially just cause, pardon me. Yeah, and speaking of politics of knowledge production, something I really appreciated in this book was your refusal to use the term migrant or to organize the book around migrant testimonies. So can you speak to these refusals and the political work that it does? Yes. I'll begin this way. I, I, I really appreciate how Audra Simpson talks about refusal and how, and how we, and how our work is often in conversation around what the kind of uh, alternative kinds of knowledge and, and sovereignties that refusals point to. Um, I 
but here I was doing it more, I think, in terms of uh, methodology. I, I did not, I feel, I feel that so much of the work on asylum in particular, but also on, on migration generally, and I'm, and I'm part of this logic. I mean, my, my earlier work was about this kind of stuff, is extracting the stories of migrants. It is uh, portraying them as always victims. And I, I want to, before I elaborate on that, I want to underscore the, 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 the centrality of uh, thinking around this by, by uh, Corinta Maldonado, who in conversation with me over and over again, always talks about, yeah, migrants are always, are always portrayed as the people who suffer. And even in this, in this, in in writing about a white nationalist who targets, uh, who well, let me back up. Even in writing about a white nationalist who writes a manifesto, a screed on migra migration and the Hispanic on the Hispanic uh, in quote unquote invasion of Texas and links it to the Christchurch shootings, other other ma massacres elsewhere in the world. Even in engaging in that, in, in, in writing that book, I wanted to not, I wanted to be careful to, to not um, register the migrant as only someone who suffers, or the borderlander, or the you know, or the like. And indeed, to go back to my earlier point, by relying upon the work of Reverend the Reverend, and I'm working, I'm working with Diana Martinez, who writes an interview in the book, who's an activist and herself. I'm working with attorneys such as Virginia Raymond, who is a brilliant scholar, activist, thinker, and runner himself, I, I can then show that despite what all that is going on, there are thinkers, there are activists, there are others there that are, that are not only challenging, but they're, but they're documenting the cruel effects and again, I want. And, and you already you already said this when you asked when we began the discussion. Trump, it's not was that moment of violence that occurred during the Trump administration was the culmination of long-term processes. Right, and the testimonies that are in the book of practitioners and activists really attest to that. So I want to speak a little bit about those. So, you know, I think it was very, a very bold choice to have those testimonies stand on their own. Uh, maybe, you know, taking a moment to breathe from uh, your mediation as an anthropologist. So I'd love to hear more about that choice and also your choices on where to place them in the book. I, I, I mean, this answer to be a bit flip and, and go back to what I was saying before. I, I, I really wanted to signal, I really wanted to represent the analyses, the, 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 
the the keen analyses, the keen documentation of these individuals. I mean, Diana Martinez, who writes, a, you know, on a, 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 a very nice and compelling interview on white supremacy in El Paso, is a longtime activist there. Virginia Raymond, again, who I've already mentioned, is a, holds a doctorate in, in English and a JD and is, you know, very much engaged in Central American uh, migrant struggles, very much, you know, uh, and their firsthand knowledge, as well as the, the reverends and, and others, it, it really just, to me, I thought if I, if I, had I tried to mediate, had I tried to like, you know, chime in, which is pretty standard in, in most academic, in most intellectual work, um, I would get in the way. And I, and I just think that their the work stands on their own. And, you know, Raymond's testimony to, to family detention in Dili and elsewhere Again, it's it's the conditions that lead to family separation. You know, I mean, that's you, we go from the Obama era of family detention, which which me and other scholars wrote about in an op-ed, I think, ten years ago, to family separation as a practice of state terror at the border, and what's even more incredible is that, you know, in many ways it continues, but in more indirect forms and not as spectacularly today. Right. Um, and I think perhaps that's sort of reflected in your attention to silence. So especially, you know, when you're thinking, uh, when, you know, we're hearing these testimonies about family separations, you tell us that bearing witness is to listen through silence. And I'm curious about um, how silences figure into your fieldwork or your writing. That's a good question. I'm just, I'm just really, I'll enter it this way. I, I think, and it's an echo to what I was talking about. I feel very privileged to work with, to, to document. That's a, no, not privileged. I feel very, let me think this through, silence. It just it just registers for, so much for me. It, I it, it, I think it shows how activists or other st storytellers are collecting themselves, how they're thinking through, and how they there are certain elements they they just cannot tell me, and I want to respect that. You know, I I want to I want to. And were I to try to mediate that and say, you know, pause, you know, and I write that, write it up in a very, in a very formal way, I think, I think that it, it, 
I would lose the 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 significance, the pain, the the memory, the the struggle to remember. I mean, I experienced that violence when I was in Urbana-Champagne when the shooting happened. I, I told you about that already. I, I got I, I, and I was shaking and I was. And then we have people who are on the border, who are losing their children. We have people who are just, I guess, I don't want to use the word trauma because it's the struggle to remember and the, and the struggle to forget what, what has happened. I also want to point to another key element of the book that I, we haven't really touched on yet. Actually, two points. One. Despite this horrendous act of violence, despite the militarization of the border, despite the vigilantes that are now, you know, that, that are that, that emerge every now and then, border life is relatively normal, and 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 I think that has been lost, and I and I think I try to talk about the people crossing the border going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to disrupt the idea that border crossing should be patrolled or, de or demands incarceration, quad detention, etc., etc. Yeah, I remember parts of the book where you you know, give us your memories from your childhood and maybe you're taking on the onus of remembering um, or you know, talking about border life on yourself rather than putting it on, um, yeah, putting it on quote-unquote migrants that are often researched in this literature. Um, yeah, I, I'm also curious about fear, grief, and rage and how it led you throughout the book. So you already told us, you know, how these emotions came up when you got the news. Um, but, you know, they also anchor the book in particular ways, and I'd love to hear more about that. Well, I mean, I, I've told you about the fear. I mean, I told you about the, the, the viscerality of that moment, right? You know, the fear and the, and the rage. And There is a whole what body of work by feminists of color, by by scholars of color on how on how grief and rage and other kinds of strong effectual responses can generate new kinds of knowledge. I was I was a uh, particularly thinking of when I wrote the book of the work of Renato Rosaldo, who I think opened the door for many of us who, who write about the border today. His scholarship, who's now you know, he's a very prominent anthropologist, out of, used to be at Stanford and now he's in New York. Um, and he's also a, a fantastic writer, by the way. Um, he writes about grief and rage at the loss of his wife during field work. I was also informed by the work of, uh, for example, Mariana Mora, who is a, a dear friend and a colleague who works in Mexico and her work on 
una digna rabia, you know, the, 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 the dignified rage of the Zapatistas and how that kind of, you know, leads to challenging oppress, oppression. As far as I've seen on social media, I know you've been giving quite a few book talks and some in El Paso as well. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the lives that the book is taking on already and how El Paso has been speaking back to the book. Yeah, that's a really important question. I've given a couple of, uh, what do you call them, book readings in El Paso. And I kind of knew that this would happen when I wrote it, that, that, you know, that I would have people in the audience that I knew would come. And it informed in part why I wrote it in a particular way. I was trying to be more public facing than in Barrio Libre, and I really tried to subordinate the theory into footnotes and the like, although occasionally I, I do do my thing, but you know. Um, so it, it's, it's, one book talk brought out all these different politicians who came. I mean, and you know, and, and I found that interesting, right? Cause they, and, they, and they wanted to, they wanted to hear what I had to say, but then there was this, there was this discussion afterwards, and it, it ranged from people's memories of that of that day. I mean, I, I I remember there was a woman in the audience whose mother I think it was her mother was in the Walmart when the shooting happened, and so it ranged from that. You know, from the from the scene of violence of, of actual violence to memories of people being forced to sit in the back of the bus because of the color of their skin, you know, and you know, so I, I I found that kind of how the how the community talks about violence, how they themselves didn't get to questions of racial nationalism, of, of white supremacy, of sitting in the back of the bus behind the line, a la Rosa Park many years ago. And in, and in, and in some ways that kind of, it, it goes to the question that I kind of wanted to push away from. I will say that I feel that in much of contemporary what many of the dominant voices today are caught up in a very binary idea of what is power and 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 racism, but I think works like unsettling or Walia's border and rule. Orana's uh, book on ter- on how's escaping me. Janeirana's wonderful book on terrorism and and the Middle East remind us how racial how racism is mobilized 
how white supremacy is integral to imperial rule and how, you know, slaves, how native peoples and other populations experienced family separation. So yeah, I, I, I do want to underline this. Much of the book um, are testimonies and witnessing about family separation. And, and again, um, as I when I was I had gone to El Paso well before you know Trump to just to write about El Paso was refuge that would had been that had been the project and then I went back in 2018 2019 for the summer and Diana Martinez the activist said well you need you need to be considering right now at this moment family separation. And I, you know, I heard from attorneys and the like about what was going on. I heard how El Paso was actually one of the first cities to implement family separation before it, before zero, zero tolerance had even been proclaimed. And so those narratives are, are informed two chapters. I have a figure in it called the Yoronex, which is talking about they're we're talking about how, well, in particular, by the about the the how what another activist, Crystal Massey, telling the story of fathers whose children disappeared and, and who are no, they don't disappear; they're taken away by elements of the state. And uh, Yoronex speaks to a folkloric figure, a a a a what has been cast as a scorned woman, you know, who, who during the age of colonial, one of the multiple colonialisms that Mexico experienced or Mesoamerica experienced, uh, loses her, her children. And there's always a question of whether or not she lost them or she she committed infanticide, she killed them. And I, and I, and I kind of mobilized that figure to talk about family separation. Right. Yeah, thanks for sharing how you, but also your readers have been pushing us to think in these very important ways. So my last question is, what comes after this book? What are you thinking or writing about next? That's a great question. I'm, I'm, be, I, I'm early on in a, in a, in a novel. And it's running with one of the running with uh, alongside and elaborate and speculating upon uh, one of the narratives from unsettling. And I want to be very clear it is a novel. It is not, I'm not going to in any way try to make it an ethnography. But it's um, it's about a a young person or young people I think it, 
who are at the border who grow up thinking themselves of a certain identity and they find out later on that they are actually the children of family separation. Yeah. I, I, I also want to go back to to a question we didn't get, we didn't get to, but I, I want to highlight this. And I'm here drawing on, on the on the keen analysis of my colleague, friend, Virginia Raymond. It's often reported in the media that what led to family separation is zero tolerance. That is not the case. Zero tolerance, what is that? With zero tolerance has happened at the border before under under Bush two and under George Bush, whatever his name was, the, the buffoon president that we had many years ago. It would have it would have been it would have involved, you know, a series of punitive measures. You know, to take children away from be it their parents or other caregivers or their you know their aunts or uncles or you know to to, to separate a chosen family is a practice of state terror. It has a deep history in the Americas and affects marginal marginalized populations. And I think, and I, and it's, and it's in many ways, many forms ongoing. Right. Um, yeah, thank you very much, Hilberto. And you know, we'll be looking forward to thinking about family separations with your novel when it comes out. But for now, thank you very much for joining us and for your insights. Thank you. This is your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of unsettling the El Paso massacre, resurgent white nationalism, and the U.S.-Mexico border, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. <laughs>